All right. Here's how we choose what we're going to talk about on a Sunday morning for the sermon. Here's how we choose. We go into the text that we chose. We chose this, I chose this months ago. We're going to be on 1 Timothy, right? right? So we've been in 1 Timothy, and the next thing we talk about is the next passage up. I don't pick topics out of what I want to talk about and look for verses to support it or whatever and then talk about it. The reason I don't like doing that is because you're at the whim of whatever I want to talk about at any given day. And this is not how the church is to be led. We are to let Scripture shape what we say. We're to let it determine the content. Now, obviously, I still have to pick the books, right? That's kind of a liberty that a, that a preacher has. But what gets said in this passage is not something I bring to it. At least that's my goal. My goal is to let the text speak for itself. That is why we are at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. I want you to know, when you do it that way, when you come to the next passage, sometimes, sometimes that passage isn't all that exciting to talk about. Listen, when I do a flat, dull sermon, I already know it's a flat, dull sermon. I knew that when I came here. It's just that that's what the text was, and I did my best, but you know what? It just didn't jazz me very much for some reason. And then there are texts like this one that you come up to and you're like, ooh, I'd rather observe the Passover on this one. I would rather not even talk about it. But y'all, here's the deal. If God gave us Scripture as it is, we need to take it, and we need to get to it, and then we need to submit to it, whatever it says. And so I'm just doing that to explain why I'm here. But it just happens to follow along a couple of concerns I have. So AJ comes up to Ryan. I was going to bring her up here, but I decided I don't want to put her on the spot. But AJ comes up to Ryan, her dad, and says, why is it? That we begin service and there's a boy who can lead singing and she says, I'm better than any of those boys. She says, I'm better. I can't, you can't imagine AJ saying that, can you? Yes, you can, if you know her at all. I can do better. You know what? She's probably right. So why can't I do that? And Ryan's like, I, I. not that he doesn't know, but boy, explaining that to a young person. And then I know we have college people here, and a lot of them don't have the whole background of church stuff to them. And they come in here, and unlike anywhere else in the world, this is all led by men, right? And it becomes weird. Is it wrong for a woman? Well, what about that? And we come to this passage, y'all, and I, I don't think it's real difficult to figure out what the passage says. What it says is pretty clear. Figuring out how to apply it and being willing to apply it is another thing entirely. And so that's why I'm saying expositorily, which the passage just, this is the time for this passage. And then I bring to it the cultural stuff. And listen, I know this goes out on Facebook, and I know there's going to be a number of people who listen to this and simply call me old-fashioned, stuck in the old ways or whatever, and I feel the pressure of that. I hate talking about this because here's the deal regardless of what God says I do not understand why he did what he did nor do I have to he's not obligated to explain that to me or to you he simply says it and as we get started um, 
There's a couple of things we need to keep in mind from where we've been already. We started 1 Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want you to listen to this again. We talked a bit this already. The reason we started there is because Paul, when he, when he comes out and he says just real clearly what he's writing for, that's the way to start reading a letter. Do you know what he wrote 1 Timothy for? He says, I hope to come to you, Timothy. I want to come to you in person. But I'm writing to you so that if for some reason I don't get there as soon as I'd like to, you will know how people ought to behave in the household of God. I want you to have a list of house rules. And I want you to write it down on a, on a piece of paper and put it on the wall. Kindergarten teachers do this. They've got their rules to the classroom. And in the first classroom, they get their bluff in and say, here are the rules, no chewing gum and no running and no making fun of, no bullying and all this. And these, some of these rules all may not be in effect in the hallway, may not be in effect at your house. But you are now in my classroom, the teacher says, and these are the rules here. And what God is saying to Timothy is, I know the world has its ways, but listen, when you're in the church, when you are in the kingdom, when you're assembled as the church and you are kingdom people, there are a certain set of rules that you honor that may sound weird to the world, but this is my house. These are my rules. It's interesting that he says this in chapter 3, right after chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 where he talks about elders and deacons. I'm writing these things so you'll know how I want my church, my house, structured. Y'all, you are now in the assembly of God's people and God's rules rule here. God's rules are in effect right now. The way we do stuff in here has nothing to do with the preferences of our elders. The, the, the things that guide what we're doing right here is not something we got together and decided. These are things that reflect as closely as we can, can get to what we know God asked for in his household. So that's the first thing I want you to know. What we say today, these are the rules in God's house. Here's the second thing from chapter 1, and it came before chapter 3, right? As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, now I left you there, Timothy. I left you in Ephesus. That's where Timothy is. I left you there to stop people from teaching different doctrine. There's people up, up there teaching, Timothy, that are teaching things that are not right. And he goes on to say they're teaching the law lawlessly. I want you to teach the law correctly. I want you to stop the false teaching, and I want you to replace it with the correct teaching of the law. Just keep that in your head, the law, the law. And then chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is right before this section, so we're going to put it in its most immediate context. He says, we, are, we, we pray to all, uh, about all sorts of people and powers that be that we can live a peaceful and quiet life. Quiet means we're not raising a fuss and chaos. Peaceful, calm life. Godly and dignified in every way. We pray that we can do this, and then he goes on to say, and here's how I expect you to do this. This is good, this pleases God, and it draws the world. So I want you to live in a way, Timothy, Paul says, I'm an apostle for this. I want you to live in a way that pleases God and draws the world to him. All right. Right after he says that, and he says, for you men, we talked about this two weeks ago, for you men, I want you to be prayer leaders. 
And when you do, I want you to lift up holy hands. I want you to lead in worship for sure, but I want more than anything else your life as you lead to be one of holiness and reverence. I don't want you to be angry at each other and quarrelsome with each other and always creating strife. No, no, I want you to apply everything that you ever read in Scripture to yourself. I want you to pursue holiness. That's what he said to men. To women, he now, pay, he, he, he now focuses on women, and that's where we are to, to this morning. So um, I want you to know something. <laughs> it's, it's odd in our world to be a man standing up in front of a mixed crowd telling women how they ought to live. This is not what any man wants to do. I am, I've never been a woman. I cannot relate to what women experience in life. I can't even pretend to appreciate what you experience. And yet here I am going to tell you how you should live as a woman. This is not something I enjoy. Can I say that to you? This is not what I would have ever decided for myself. But you see, we are not at liberty to choose and pick what we want. This is what God says. I'm going to use what Paul says that I understand as being inspired by God to do this. And I'm pretty confident I know that this is what it says. I also know, side note, I have lots of friends I love and respect, preachers, Church of Christ preachers and otherwise, who view this differently. They would take this same, pre- same passage and they would preach it very differently than I do. I respect them, but I feel like they are wrong-headed. And I'm going to do this the best I can, but I want you to know there are alternatives out there. And I just want you to be, I just want to be honest so you know this. But we're going to take this as clearly from Scripture as we possibly can. Two things to women when it comes to pleasing God and what the world needs from us and what God wants from us is we, God wants women who pay more attention to their internal character than their external appearance. To major in what's important to God rather than important to the world. And I know what the world is preaching to you ladies all the time about how you should look and what your size should be and your shape should be and what your clothes should be. I know when you try to live, you got to go out there and even live by the fashions. I, I love this one. Uh, yesterday I read a meme on Facebook that this, this one lady says, listen, I know you, 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 you marketers think you know everything, but there are some of us women who want to be able to buy the rest of the shirt. That makes sense? I really do want it all. And why we pay double for half, I'll never understand. Right? Why do we pay double the price for half the material? I don't know. The world is telling us what our beauty is and where our value is. Women, you are inundated much more than us men are. We men can't possibly fathom the pressure you're under, and I get this. And these women, I want you to, I want you to understand what he says here. Men should pray, obviously, but likewise, women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Not with that braided hair with gold in it or pearls or costly attire, but with, uh, with what is proper for women who profess godliness. For women who really, who really profess to be lovers of God, you should want to major in what God finds beautiful, good works. Go out there and be a difference in the world and live with godly character. 
I think here, I'm going to take a bit of a speculation. The Roman world was a lot different than the Jewish world. There was greater liberation for women in the first century than we realize, especially in Roman cultures. And apparently there were some women in the culture who were very successful and, and prosperous. We think of Lydia and Philippi, who was a seller of purple, a very wealthy woman. There were women in Ephesus like this, and they could dress to the hilt. And they might have, been, they might have even been leaders in their fields in Ephesus. And so they dressed the part, and they acted the part. They were wealthy. They were influential. They had power in the culture. And then, perhaps, I can imagine they're the ones who have a home big enough for the church to meet in. And so the church comes and meets in their home, and they come out in the demeanor and the dress of the worldly power structure. They're just taking what's used to in the world, and they're bringing it into the church. And they're communicating that. And into the church comes men and women who make up most of the church, or the common men and women, maybe even slaves, and they are intimidated by these women who are so capable and so dressed to the hilt. And they start using the power structure and communication of the world inside the church. And Paul says to Timothy, I want you to tell the church that what is the power and authority in the church is different than what it is in the world. You're in my house. You're in God's house, and what he values is not that expression of power. What he, express, what he wants is the expression of power and influence that comes through godly character. It is almost like they're bringing in Confederate money. Confederate money is interesting. At one time it was valuable, but now it doesn't hold value. And so God says, I want you to know in my house, there's a different currency. That currency is not money and it's not power of the world. The currency is godliness and holiness. And I want you to major in that. And it is very difficult, isn't it, to keep worldly values out of the church when it comes to us? I can tell you churches who've chosen their elders, not according to 1 Timothy 3, of having this powerful grasp of Scripture in both their life and in their brains, but they choose it according to worldly success. This guy's a business leader. This guy is wealthy. He is over a bunch of people in that corporation. That makes him elder material. No, it does not. Because the structure here in God's house is different from in the world. We do the same with preachers, y'all. We want somebody who can make us laugh and to keep us on the edge of our seats. And, and that's fine as long as the truth is there. But don't use that as a primary standard for choosing a preacher. We have a different value in here. And he says to the women, listen, what impresses God and what, is what, what he honors in this place as we gather is not the same as in the world. It's a different standard. This is a timeless problem we deal with, and, and we all have it in our brains. Now, I want you to think about the irony of this. He says, I, instead, of, instead of communicating your power through your dress of wealth, what I want you to do is do good works, right? But I want you to think about this, how we have messed this up a little bit in the past. How many of you remember, when you go to church, you got to wear your best. How many remember this? You wear your best, right? You, you get it for Christmas or you spend a lot of money. You wear your best. Let me ask you something. If you 
wearing your best causes other people to become self-conscious that their best doesn't look anything like your best, they become self-conscious and then they no longer come. You see that happening? Did you ever see that happening? Maybe we went home and we said, can you believe that person wore that to church? You're supposed to wear your best. Now, hold just a minute. You are to wear your best, but look through the lens of God, not through the lens of the world. It results in a different product, doesn't it? I think you should wear something that reflects your respect for God, but you also should wear it in respect to your fellow man and not be intimidating to the other person. That's just as important. And that's what Paul wants to say to the women first. And the, I, don't, I don't say that to make us feel guilty for, for wearing our best. I do just want us to understand the definition of what's best is what God communicates, not what we think of in this world. Now, if that were the only message, I would preach this um, a little more enthusiastically because that's pretty simple. The rest of it gets a little strange. And if I, I kind of wish there was a bell that went off that said we're done right now. That'd be really nice. But here is the second one. This goes against you college students. This goes against everything you'll see anywhere else in the world. This is going to offend our culture till the day Jesus comes. And I wish there was a way that we can soften this. But there simply isn't. And so you just preach it. The second one is do not engage. Women do not engage the, in presenting the authoritative teaching of the church in public worship. They do not. Ladies do not. And this is what he says. I do not. And he says it, first of all, he says it positively and then he says it negatively. I want you to notice this. Let a woman, verse 11, learn quietly in all submissiveness. She is to learn. That's a great thing to say. Because in a culture that sometimes, at least in the past, had thought that women can't learn or shouldn't learn, in the church, we believe women should learn. They should be just like everybody else. We come to learn the ways of God, but we do so quietly. That doesn't mean you don't say a word. It means we are calm and we are orderly. Then you have to ask this question, with all submissiveness. Submissiveness to what? The text doesn't say. Maybe submissiveness is just an attitude, a disposition of the heart that you can show. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe, and this is kind of what I think it is, in all submissiveness to what you learn. When you study the law, when you study the gospel, what you're going to learn is that there's some role differences. And when you learn that, you need to submit to it. You need to submit to what you learn. And we'll get to that in a minute. Here's the positive way, or the negative way, I should say. He then says in verse 12, I do not, these are not my words. These are not Terry Smith's words. Do not shoot the messenger. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain Quiet. Exercise authority over doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. You have nothing to compare it to. So it's a little difficult maybe to know exactly what he's saying, but there just seems to be an essence that's there. 
no exercising authority over a man. She is to remain silent, calm. This goes against everything, doesn't it, in our world? I just, I almost find myself just cringing and kind of looking down and going, yeah, and kicking a rock, right? I almost do. Because for me, I don't understand why God would say this. And it, when you take all of Scripture all together, and you do, and people who talk about this, I'd love to do a Bible class sometime. We go through several weeks of talking about this and having conversation because I'd love to hear the give and take. But if we're going to solve this issue, there's three areas you need to know, okay? This is the three biggies. So if you're ever going to, you want to know this, there are two main positions. Many people think that women should be able to do everything just like a, a man does when it comes to the church. Total leadership freedom. And others like Valley View, this is where we are. We believe male spiritual leadership says the men should do the authoritative teaching in the church presented, okay? Those are the two sides. And you're going to hear all sorts of things. Listen, you read about this. I've read e not every book. There's a couple I haven't gotten to yet. But this, this thing fascinates me, so I've read a lot. Here's the three things you've got to have. Number one, this is the test to determine your side on this issue. One, creation. You all know creation. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? That's creation. Position 1 says, when, that, when it's a, a position that says women should be able to lead in any way that a man should, they're going to say the reason why we believe that is because male spiritual leadership started in Genesis 3. Does anybody recall what happens in Genesis 3? Everything's perfect, Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 3 is a train wreck, Right? You have Eve talking to a serpent. That's your first mistake. And then you keep listening and it falls. And the punishment that Eve gets is this. You're going to have great pain in childbearing. Just remember that. And the second thing is, you are going to fight with your husband. You are going to want to have what he has, and he is going to rule over you. And this view says... That's where male spiritual leadership started. It's part of the curse that through Christ we want to reverse. We want to reverse the curse. So let's undo all that stuff like the male spiritual leadership and get back to creation. That's one view. Many people hold it. I appreciate it, but I can't go there. And I'll tell you why. Because also in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin ever came, before it ever got crashed and messed up, do you remember how God did it? Who was created first? Okay, this is basic stuff, y'all. You can answer this. Who was created? The women are like, well, we're supposed to remain silent. We can't answer that. No, you can't. So, so who was created first? Adam. Now, you might say, well, big whoop, right? And that's what I would say reading Genesis. I'd go, okay, the man happened to be created first. And many people say, that doesn't mean anything. But I'm just telling you, here's my, here's my view, and we'll talk about what Paul thinks in a minute. He created him first as an indication he expected him to spiritually lead his family. Not only that, but he gave him the command about the tree in the garden. We don't know if he ever gave Eve that command directly. We know he told the man. Gave him a job, right? 
He named the animals. All this stuff happens before Eve is ever created. And then when she's created, she's created from him for him. And I look at that story and say, that's interesting. We've known that since we were kids. You have to decide, is that some kind of significant principle or is that just a narrative that means nothing? You have to decide that. Male spiritual leadership is in God's design at the very beginning. All right, creation. Second one we can't deal with very much. We don't have the time for this one, but it fascinates me to no end. Both positions have to decide what are you going to do with the counterexamples. If you believe a woman should be able to lead in any way she wants to, what are you going to do with this passage in 1 Timothy? And what are you going to do with 1 Corinthians 14? And what are you going to do with the fact that there were 12 apostles, and then one died, and they replaced him, and it was with a man? And what are you going to do with, first, with Acts chapter 6? When we're going to set you free to pick these people who will help the Grecian widows, the most, the most smart thing they could have done is pick women to handle it, but it couldn't be a woman. Apostles said so. What do you do with all that stuff? Okay, but on the other side, where Valley View is, we think this is the way to do it. We've got some exceptions we've got to deal with, too. You've got Deborah, and you've got the Old Testament prophetesses. You've got Philip's four daughters. You've got 1 Corinthians 11. All these other counterexamples, you're like, where does this fit? We don't have the time to deal with that. Thank the Lord. Right now, right? But that's something you have to deal with. Third one, culture. How much of what Paul says is just a cultural expression for a limited time problem? Head coverings, 1 Corinthians 11. Is that for all time? Apparently we don't think so because there ain't no heads being covered right now, right? So what do you do with that? Culture. Is culture behind this? And if culture is behind this, if you're in a culture where this problem isn't, then you should take this instruction out. All right. I just want to give you those three tests. This is no extra cost at all. But we're going to put it to test, okay? I want you to know, what does Paul think? How does Paul decide that the proper thing for the women in Ephesus to do is to learn in quietness and not have authority over a man? How does he decide that's the proper thing to say? And that's where we jump in for the rest of it. Verse number 13. Four. I want women to be learn quietly because I want women to not have authority over a man because here's what I'm rooting it in. Here's why I'm saying this. The reason why this is appropriate is because of what I'm about to say because Adam was formed first. Let me ask you church, is it significant in the plan of God that God created the man first? You're not convinced. The reason why Ephesian women had to stand down is because back in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the man first. Bizarre, isn't it? I didn't see it. Paul did by inspiration. And he says this in two other places. So this is not isolated. The reason this contemporary problem needs to be settled this way is because of this timeless story that started it all that reflects the will of God before sin came to be I do not like it but I do not care whether I like it or not 
expository preaching. He goes on to say, Adam also was not the one deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now he moves to Genesis 3. What does this mean? In Genesis 3, male spiritual leadership was put in the back seat. It was disregarded. Day number one, it's like Genesis 2, he puts it in effect. In Genesis 3, the woman was deceived and the man was nowhere to be found to lead. The man just put away his leadership role and decided, I'm just going to let her take charge. And the man's back. It doesn't mean that she's gullible or she's not intelligent. It's not that at all. What it does mean is when you dispense with male spiritual leadership, things fall apart in God's house. And God says, I want to get beyond that. Strange, isn't it? He goes back to creation, but he doesn't say it's part of the curse that needs to be reversed. He says it's part of the design that needs to be honored and reflected. Paul did not ground this instruction of women being silent and not usurping authority over a man when it comes to the teaching of the church. He did not ground it in a contemporary problem at Ephesus. The culture and its context presented a context. The culture presented a context, but the culture didn't shape the content. What he chose to do was this. He applied timeless scripture to a timely problem. That scripture was always true, always will be true. It wasn't at odds with most of the churches of the first century. They already had this resolved. This creation theology held sway in the churches. But when culture decides we want to barge into God's house and we want to change the rules to match our taste, that's when the church has to stand up and point a finger at the walls on the, the, the rules on the wall and say, this presides here. This is how we do it here because it's God's way not ours we only have to do that when the rule is being challenged by the culture breaking down the door and I would say the Ephesus situation is being reflected in our own culture the exact same context is facing the church now and the exact same scriptural approach must be applied today it hasn't changed despite the fact I find it bizarre I also find it clear and if you think this is the only support the weirdest verse in all of scripture and it sounds terrible is verse 15 women will be saved through childbearing now what in the world does every woman have to have a child no he picks a figure to represent a common role for women that is only for women does anybody know a culture a context anywhere in the world today where the men rise up and they say listen we're gonna have the babies here does anybody know of one if they are, they are the dumbest people on the face of the planet, in my opinion. He picks a figure that is absolutely clear. There, there is a role designed by the Creator 
built into nature that is exclusively female. This has a role, a script that goes with it. And no, it doesn't mean barefoot and pregnant at home all the time. He doesn't fill out what that role looks like, but he does say, listen, the Creator shows us in nature there are roles that are exclusive to each gender, and you need to honor them. Childbearing is one of them. And the things that go with it, you ladies, listen, uh, that husband, I wish I could do it for you. They're lying. There ain't no man who wants to do that. Nor is there any man who can. You want to ask God why he did it that way, you're going to have to ask him. But nature is clear, isn't it? We can debate it. We can protest it. We cannot like it. I'd hate this. I don't want it to be this way. It's just that. When it comes to God's way, and I don't understand it, I don't have to, but when it comes to God's way, When it comes to the church, he says, I want you men to be over the spiritual authoritative teaching of the church, and I want you to present it, and I want you to be the ones to exhibit that before the church. I don't want the women to have to do that. You've got other roles, and listen, Gary James will tell you this, and he's absolutely right. The biggest bulk of the work of the church is done by women. There is no doubt about that. This hour you see up here where half a dozen men get up here and leave, this is not like, this is, hey, look at us, Ooh, this is what we do. This is about all we do. Really? It's about all we do. And the women are out there doing all sorts of things. And then there'll be people who say, well, yeah, but that's discounted. You're not giving them, it's, we can't. We can't. What God wants is for his will to shape our behavior. And sometimes it will make sense to us. It will be reasonable. It'll be right in our zone, and we'll just got to get this flow going. But sometimes we'll have no clue why he said what he said. But in the end, this is God's house, and his rules prevail. So men, you deal with your anger, and you be forgiving, and you quit quarreling with people, and you live your life in holiness. And then... Lead in prayer. You ladies, go ahead and work on that outer self, that shell, that's fine. But whatever you do, remember this. The thing God values most is the inner character and the good works that you do. Learn, but do it quietly. Let those men lead and empower them to lead. Because God created it that way and told us so. Again, I find it odd and mysterious, but that's not the only thing. There are all sorts of things God didn't ask for my opinion. I don't really know what physical water in a tub like this does for you spiritually, how water in a tub has anything to do with your conscience or your spiritual life. I don't really know what in a moment you're going to take a small cracker and you're going to put it in your mouth, and you're going to take the fruit of the vine and you're going to put it in your mouth. And I don't really know why that, for God, is really remembering Jesus more than just letting it throw through your mind. What I do know is they mean something because God caused them to mean something. And that makes them mean something to me. I will not miss a Sunday with the Lord's Supper, will you? I can't get along with the the idea that anyone can be saved apart from being immersed in that water. And and they're going to say, what's it about the water? It's not about the water 
exactly, except as God decided it was. And that's what makes it meaningful to me. That's how it is in God's house, and that's what it says in God's Word. So let's be people who don't sit around and contemplate why or what, but we just submit to our God in all things, especially, listen, especially when that is so challenging in the eyes of the world, that's when they need to see it most. That's what God wants and what the world needs to see. And this morning, if there's certain areas of your life where you've held out from that, maybe you've decided, you know what, I love God, I'm just going to serve Him. I don't need this baptism thing. Listen, I don't, I don't know what you're thinking, but I know what God has said. And you may not fully understand why that is the process. You'll, you'll appreciate it more as time goes by and you read more Scripture. But listen, even if you don't really know why this has all that much to do with this, it doesn't matter. God says so, and so you submit. And listen, by the way, that's the first step that you'll have to do. You're going to have to submit when you don't understand why for the rest of your life. That's what lordship means. If anyone who needs to repent of sin... Even sin that you thought up to now was no big deal. You can't see why this is any big deal to God, but God says it's a big deal. Lying, cheating, stealing. There's anyone here who needs to repent of a sin and you need the prayers of this church to help. We stand ready to receive you. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.